This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 49, July the 18th, 1983. One of the first things I'd like to discuss uh, this afternoon is a very important book, one of far-reaching consequences. It is the Bar Kokhba Syndrome by Yehoshaphat Harkabi, published this year by Rossell, R-O-S-S-E-L Books, 44 Dunbow, D-U-N-B-O-W Drive, Chappaqua, New York, 10514 for 1595. Now this book is by the uh, Professor of International Relations and Middle Eastern Studies at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He has served quite extensively in the Israeli government, among other offices, as Chief of Military Intelligence for the State of Israel, and he retired from the Israel Defense Forces with the rank of Major General. The substance of this was delivered as a lecture in 1981 in Washington, D.C. Now, Bar Kokhba was a Jewish leader, a false messiah, who created a major uprising in the years 132 to 135 A.D. With his defeat, the nation of Judea was forever destroyed by the Romans, so that the Jews had no place in Palestine until in the post-World War II era. The book is important, however, for more reasons than those which concern Israel. His point is that Israel has too long regarded and uh, Jews generally, Bar Kokhba as a hero. On the contrary, he says, Bar Kokhba was a disaster. His policies were suicidal. It was, and his t expression is excellent, solution through catastrophe. Now, the reason why this book is important for all of us is this. Harkabi makes this point that with most nations throughout history, victories are wasted assets. Victors are unwilling to learn from their victories because they feel the lesson is unnecessary. As a result, they come out of a victory and stumble then into a defeat. Certainly, this applies to us and World War II. We came out of World War II and did everything imaginable in the wrong way, so that victories as wasted assets is a very important point, and we can understand why the state of Israel did well with this man as chief of military intelligence. He's a very superior man. But, he goes on to say, defeats are also wasted when people refuse to learn from them. If a nation, having been defeated, then proceeds to justify itself, then it will learn nothing from its defeat. And nations that learn from their defeats are few and far between. He singles out one as a signal exception, Japan. Japan came out of World War II crushed. But there was a rapid assessment of their mistakes and they proceeded to alter their national goals, with the result that Japan very quickly again became a world power and became a world power on entirely different terms. Now, what Bar Kokhba did was to refuse to learn from the past. The simple fact, according to Harkabi is that Rome could not afford to lose a war with the Jews. Their position was too strategic. The loss of Israel would have meant the loss of the entire of its Asian holdings. 
Moreover, Judean culture was infiltrating Rome. Its influence was felt in high places. Judea was the one nation in the Roman Empire with a privileged status. But, says Harkabi, the people had an all-or-nothing mentality, and as a result, they became radically suicidal. His book, thus, is extremely important because what he is talking about fits the Western world as a whole. It fits us in relationship to the Soviet Union, in relationship to every country. Harkabi says that since 1967, Israel has taken the wrong course, has become unrealistic and suicidal, and has accordingly a bleak outlook unless it changes its ways. It has become so totally unrealistic that he quotes, for example, Prime Minister Begin is saying, and I quote, Israel gives the United States strategic assistance and contributes to the security of the United States more than the United States contributes to the security of Israel, unquote. And Harkavi comments, the relationship seems reversed, as if it were claimed that Israel Israeli tactical tricks in the use of American planes are more important than the planes themselves. If this is the relationship and U.S. spokesmen do not question it, then the Israeli public can rest assured that U.S. aid will always be forthcoming." Unquote. He goes on to say that the United States, and I quote, has contributed to the primitivization of Israeli political thinking, unquote, by not correcting Begin and other such politicians. His book thus is an appeal to the people of Israel to wake up before it's too late. I would say it's as relevant in its appeal to the American public to wake up, to stop throwing away victories and to learn from defeats. A good example of this kind of thing, failure to learn from victories and defeats, of course, is the English Civil War. In that war, the Cavaliers were defeated by the parliamentary forces and by Cromwell, ultimately. The interesting thing is that Probably the Puritans numbered about 4% of the people. They were, however, the commanding 4%. Even then, they were not united, because the wealthy merchants of London emphatically did not want the king to be eliminated. Their status and their privilege depended upon the king, but they wanted the king to be controlled, and the king refused to be controlled. Charles I emphatically believed in divine rights. Moreover, the nobility and the aristocracy emphatically believed, too, in their special privileges. For example, here is the state's, uh, statement of Viscount Conway, and I quote, We eat and drink and rise up to play, and this is to live like a gentleman, for what is a gentleman but his pleasure? Unquote. And King James I, the father of Charles I, had said of Parliament, I am surprised that any of my ancestors should have permitted such an institution to come into existence. This was their attitude. Many worse statements could be cited. Let me say, by the way, that uh, going back a couple of centuries, really, into the medieval era, the gentlemen of the nobility had privileges of dissipation and of vice 
which commoners did not have. The rules against gambling did not hold for the nobility. The rules with regard to fasting were more loosely held for the nobility. As a result, the nobility could do as they please and privilege meant really license. The courtiers lived off pensions and monopolies and did little except to look decorative. Now, when the war began, both sides followed the typical method of warfare in that day, living off the land, plunder. As a matter of fact, Charles brought in some of the mercenaries from the Thirty Years' War. And it is a matter of record that those mercenaries, in surveying the English scene, said, with well, a little wise planning, we can make this war last twenty years. The idea of mercenaries was to plunder as much as possible and fight as little as possible. And that's why the Thirty Years' War was so deadly for Germany. Both sides throughout the war plundered and raped. They wiped out entire areas of Germany. And of course, this is what they expected to do in England. It was not only the mercenaries. The king's nephew, Prince Rupert, really made up the most vicious uh, group of plunderers with his cavalry. As a matter of fact, in the siege of Gloucester, what happened was most revealing, but the royalists refused to learn from it. The city was held by the parliamentary troops. These men were in a city which was largely royalist. But the royalists fought with the parliamentarians as intensely as anyone else. The reason was very easy. Outside the walls was Prince Rupert and his cavalry and all the other troops of King Charles. Once they entered that city, they would ripe and rob everyone without exception. And the royalists did not want to be exposed to that. Now this happened again and again and again. Very soon, however, the parliamentary army realized that Plunder certainly did not increase their status with the people. They were depending on the people to support them. As a result, two of the leaders, Fairfax and Cromwell, immediately passed laws invoking the death penalty against any one of their men who laid a hand on the property of any city or community that they took or laid a hand on any of the women. They lived by that. Twice, I believe it was, they broke that and exacted vengeance on a city ruthlessly, let me add. But by and large, the new model army under Cromwell and the cavalry under Fairfax kept that law very strictly and naturally scored with the people. They had troops, common men, ready to fight for them. The net result was that the longer the la war lasted, the greater their strength grew. One of the sad facts of that war was that a Scottish lord, Montrose, who was on the side of the king and was in many respects a very uh, remarkable man, very able. All the same resorted to the same kind of thing. It was the only thing they knew. They did not learn a single thing throughout the war. All the lords, the gentlemen, the courtiers, and the royal family 
dreamed of merry old England. And merry England for them meant the privilege of doing as they pleased, living off the people, exploit them, uh, exploiting them endlessly, and expecting them to entertain them, to dance and to sing for them, and to wait on them and regard it as a privilege to do so. Not a one throughout the entire Civil War or thereafter ever woke up to the fact that maybe it had not been Merry England for the common man. Certainly there had been, in the days when England was still Catholic and after it became Anglican, enough revolts to let them know the common people did not like their conception of merry old England. Well, Montrose brought over Irish troops. With these Irish troops, he and his Highlanders went into the lowlands. They besieged Aberdeen, and although many of the Aberdonians were royalists at heart, they raped and plundered that city as ruthlessly as could be done. Now, I mention this because nobody ever refers to these facts, or very few do when they're talking about the Civil War, the continual plunder. What we do remember from that war is what Cromwell did in Ireland, the two massacres. Now, those two massacres, which from our perspective today represent an evil thing, were done, however, in terms of the rules of warfare in that day, very strictly. It was the kind of thing that had been done by people everywhere and had been done until recently, was still being done, in fact. But the thing that struck them with horror and makes those two massacres remembered to this day was the cold-blooded way in which it was done. Now, that was unbelievable. It was staggering to the people of the time. And that's the only thing they remembered, nothing else. What they failed to see was the potential there for a different kind of order and a different kind of army, a disciplined army, which even when it commits an atrocity is disciplined, because while it was an entirely legal thing, it was an atrocity. It was strictly according to the rules of warfare, but the rules of warfare were hardly what we today would regard as morally right. But the point is, here was a new model army that was never defeated that won battle after battle. And it did so because there was a discipline. The interesting thing is that the army was organized almost like a church. In fact, the Scottish Covenanters army was. They not only had a chaplain, but they also had elders in each division of the army, church elders who had an oversight over the men to care for their problems, to do something about their needs and to counsel them. The uh, English army of the uh, parliamentary forces, under Fairfax and Cromwell especially, had a rather similar order. One of the most remarkable things in all of history are the Putney debates. Now, we may not agree with the conclusions they came to, but they were remarkable conclusions and often brilliant. Far ahead of their time, they debated the nature of the order that was to be created when the war ended. We got that kind of order here in this country with a foundation laid by the Constitution. It was really a continuation of the New Model Army's goals. 
But the Putney Army debate saw officers and generals and men arguing back and forth, hurling charges back and forth if they felt somebody's position was out of line, and coming to the point where they issued an agreement, a political position paper. Very remarkable thing. Now, no one learned from the defeat of the English, of the royalist forces, nor from the victory of the new model army until this century. It is an interesting fact that the Marxists re realized that here was a people's army that won. And so beginning in the last century, the radicals began to study Cromwell's regime the people's army idea, with the result that Mao Zedong was able to create a force out of peoples with dedication. But the trouble was, with victory, they did not know how to deal with them. They wanted to establish the dictatorship of the proletariat. So, wasted victories have been commonplace in history very, very commonplace. And the result has been that, as Disraeli said, practical men are men who repeat the blunders of their predecessors. An excellent line. Well, an interesting fact which I encountered in Geoffrey Treese's book, Portrait of a Cavalier, William Cavendish, First Duke of Newcastle, was this. Uh, Newcastle was a general on the side of the Royalists, although this is primarily a biography and not too much about the war in it. However, this one fact is a constitutional fact of interest. It's something we forget because the history of this goes back to at least Magna Carta. The Earl had difficulties with his troops because he was breaking the rule that the militia should not be made to serve outside their own county. And there was an outcry which he ignored. Now, when the U.S. Constitution was written, one of the stipulations with regard to the militia, which in those days referred to a drafted army, followed in the line of this very old tradition and belief. It goes back to the Bible, to the fact of defensive warfare. The Constitution says that a militia or a drafted army can be used only for three purposes. To suppress insurrection, repel invasion, and enforce the laws of the Union. This is why in the Spanish-American War only drafted, uh, only volunteers could be used, no drafted men. With World War I, we ordered draftees to go to Europe. A number of them filed against this, and they lost their cases when the Supreme Court, after the war ended, heard their cases and decided to set aside the Constitution at that point. One of a number of places where in recent years the Constitution has been disregarded. But this is an important point, and one well worth taking to heart and fighting to reestablish as a premise of constitutional law. Now I'm going to go to another book, one also just recently published in 1982 by the Viking Press. The author is Jasper Ridley, and the title Statesman and Saint, Cardinal Wolsey, Sir Thomas More, and the Politics of Henry VIII. This is a particularly brilliant book and one that has for a long time needed writing because we've had it all backwards. Sir Thomas More is regarded as a saint. 
he was only in his death. All his life he was a most wretched man, uh, evil-minded, evil-tongued. Uh, he was a liar to the core. Cardinal Wolsey was a practical churchman, very much a man of the world, and uh, very much maligned by history. Ridley says, and I quote, Moore died for his principles, but for what principles? If, in fact, he said, as the Paris Newsletter reported, that he died because of his opposition to Henry's marriage to Anne Boleyn, this was untrue. Some have claimed that he died to uphold the papal supremacy over the Church of England. Others have pointed out that he never expressly said that he believed in papal supremacy and died for a denial of the royal supremacy, not for asserting the supremacy of anyone else. But Moore repeatedly declared that he never had and never would oppose either the marriage to Anne or the establishment of the royal supremacy over the church. He balked only at taking the oath. He died because he believed that though a man was entitled to lie and forge in the interests of the church and the struggle against heresy, he would imperil his immortal soul if he swore an oath which he did not believe true. On the other hand, he says of Wolsey, and I quote, like all his contemporaries, Wolsey suppressed heresy and prosecuted heretics and would not have shrunk from burning them in certain circumstances. But compared to Moore, he was tolerant and merciful. He was a man of the old regime, of the international church as it existed on the eve of the Reformation, easygoing, self-indulgent, corrupt, wholly lacking in both idealism and fanaticism, and relatively tolerant. His fall was the signal for the beginning of a religious, political, and social revolution. It left the field free for the revolutionaries and counter-revolutionaries, both of whom rejected Wolsey and the old regime. Now, I think that's a good assessment, but there's much more to this. Let me digress for a while before I come back to this book. Many people are sometimes a little confused where I stand religiously. And uh, I'm sometimes told that I am very much too pro-Baptist. Well, I have a very great admiration for the Baptist tradition, but I'm not a Baptist. I feel that their contribution is exceedingly important and needs to be appreciated. Sometimes I am told by people uh, if I, uh, that I appear almost to be a secret Catholic. Well, uh, again, as with the Baptists, I am not a, a Catholic. I have a great appreciation for the contributions of the Catholic Church over the centuries. And there are points where I definitely disagree and points where, as with the Baptists and the Catholics both, I am most appreciative. My point is this. What we are seeing today is a systematic effort to destroy Christianity. Now, in the battle for the freedom of the church from the state, the contributions have been very great on the part of both Baptists and Catholics, and also, to some degree, on the part of Calvinists, the tradition I represent. In recent years, of course, uh, the Calvinists have been uh, very much asleep, if not dead. So uh, there's not much you can say about their recent contributions. But today, as we face a life and death struggle, we had better realize that as we look at the past, we've got to see what the sins of the church were and what the sins of the state were. Now, I submit that a great deal of what happened in the later Middle Ages happened not because the church desired to do these things, 
but because the late medieval church was controlled, radically controlled by the Holy Roman emperors and by the national kings. One of the facts very seldom acknowledged is that the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian, who preceded Charles V, was so eager to control the church totally, which he controlled to a great extent, that he actually thought of uh, having the Pope kicked out and himself named Pope. That way there would be no facade to work through. The College of Cardinals was regularly bribed and browbeaten and controlled and the men to it named by national kings. Whenever the College of Cardinals elected an independent pope, it only happened because they were on the scene when the pope died and before the kings or the emperor could get to them, they immediately went into session and elected a pope. On top of that, there is this fact. Some of the most anti-Christian men you can imagine were being named cardinals and popes on the orders of the kings and the emperors. In the book I'm writing, I deal in at least one chapter with Marsilius or Marsiglio of Padua. I won't go into what I have to say about him. In fact, I can look across the room and see where some of the early chapters are in process of being typed. Marsilius was as radical in his desire for the destruction of Christianity as can be imagined. He wanted to maintain the facade of it, but for him Christianity really had no... Morality was to be derived from the state and from reason, not from theology, not from God. The Pope of his day sought to have him arrested because he was teaching in a religious college and he was going to be kicked out. He sought refuge with Rudolf the Emperor, who promptly had him made a bishop and sent back to Italy. I believe it was Milan as bishop. Now that was the kind of thing that happened, and it was routine. Moreover, very, very early in the medieval era, the kings saw the wisdom of using a facade to do evil. For example, the kings of England, not famous for being mild in their system of taxation, found taxes to be insufficient. So what they did was to move into the area of money lending. But naturally, the kings of England never sought to be exposed in such a way in what they did that they took the blame. So what they did was to license a foreign group, Jews, to be the money lenders. Well, when the Jews lent money, the kings forced them to ever higher and higher rates of interest and more oppressive ways of money lending because their profits were being taxed by the crown. It finally reached the point where the hatred of Jews in England was intense. And the point came where the monarchy, to gain popularity, expelled all Jews from England. But before it did so, of course, it confiscated everything that every Jew had. Now that was routine. This was the kind of operation that the monarchies in all the countries of Europe maintained. 
They used a facade. So what happened before the Middle Ages was too far underway was that they recognized the prestige of the church was something to be exploited. And so they began to draft brilliant young priests to be their civil service officers, their bureaucracy, because it was very easy then to deflect the hatred which men felt for the acts to the church. And the church gained the reputation of being corrupt and evil. And, of course, in the process, they corrupted the church because they controlled it lock, stock, and barrel. What happened in England with Henry VIII was uh, really something in name only because the church in Spain and in France and Austria all had everything that Henry sought. They maintained the facade of connections with Rome only to be able better to control Rome, which they did. They controlled the Catholic Church within their realm, lock, stock, and barrel. Well, Ridley touches on a little bit of this. In fact, his book is a good illustration of this, although this was not his main purpose. He says, and I quote, Most important of all, the king's government was very largely carried on by priests. His chief minister, the Lord Chancellor, was nearly always a priest. There had only been two cases in history of a layman holding the office. About half the members of the Privy Council, the equivalent of the modern cabinet, were bishops. Ambassadors were usually bishops or deans. The lower ranks of the government administration were manned partly by priests and partly by laymen. This link between the church and what we today would call the civil service was one of the reasons why the church by the end of the 15th century had become completely corrupt. It was not merely that there were isolated cases of corruption. The corruption had become endemic, as it is in the civil service in some countries today. With a few exceptions, nearly every priest was corrupt. The people expected a priest to be corrupt and thought him a fool if he was not corrupt. When nearly everyone is corrupt, it, is, it becomes almost misleading to speak of corruption, for no one thinks that it is wrong to act in the usual way in which everyone else is acting. Corruption is especially likely to take hold in a society where people's lives are beset by regulations, and when licenses are needed before anything can be done." Unquote. And then he goes on to say that every time you turned around, you had to have a license, and it was the priests who had been given the power to grant the licenses. And moreover, the priests in the civil service had to have gifts or bribes because they did not receive any salaries. The result is that if you are a person interested in government service, the best way to get ahead was to be a priest. Because there was no chance of promotion if you were not. And hence, uh, well, let me uh, quote again from Ridley. Indeed, the word religion was used exclusively to refer to monks and nuns. When a man in the 15th century spoke about the religious, he meant monks and nuns. And when the authorities called a meeting to discuss matters appertaining to religion, they talked only about the state of the monasteries and nunneries." Unquote. On top of that, to give you an idea of what the status of these, the regular clergy, monks and nuns, was, any time they were short of funds, they would apply for a license from the Vatican 
to shut down some monasteries and confiscate their holdings. And the Vatican would grant them. The Vatican didn't dare not grant them because the Vatican, to a great extent, was controlled by the monarchs and the emperor. It is interesting in the case of the divorce that uh, the Pope did grant Henry VIII the right to marry Anne Boleyn. He granted him a special dispensation because since Anne's older sister had been Henry VIII's marriage, it was strictly speaking in terms of the law incest for him to marry Anne. He was granted a dispensation to marry her, but at the beginning not a dispensation for his divorce, which was playing politics indeed. However, at one point the actual uh, divorce uh, was granted, and uh, the Pope, however, subsequently welched on the deal. The Pope had some real problems because Rome had been sacked by the troops of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, uh, some histories tell this uh, story about that sack. It was, they were Protestant troops. They were not. They were predominantly from Catholic countries, but they were mercenaries, so they were not Catholic or Protestant. They were men without any faith. A few of them were uh, Germans, a minority of them, but they were not of any faith. They were the scum, all of those troops, of Europe. And what was done was routine, just what was done in every case in those days the plunder of a city. Only in this case it created a scandal over Rome, all over Europe, because it was so vicious. The troops compelled the priests and nuns to copulate naked in the streets and in the churches, and then murdered them. They maintained for two weeks or more, as I recall, the most vicious and depraved kind of sack of Rome imaginable. They were godless men. They delighted in every kind of profanation. Now, this, let me say, was routine in those days. And there wasn't a monarch in Europe who scrupled at the idea of such a sack, including of his own people, as in the English Civil War. And the Pope was playing a game trying to keep both sides happy, granting and taking away one thing after another. Well, this book is an important one because it gives us a sidelight onto things of the day. Let me add something further, and I'm going to try to keep back some of what I had to have to say for my book, which I hope you'll read when it comes out early next year. With the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, both uh, Catholicism and Protestantism had a real revival. However, subsequently, they again fell under the control of the state, very badly so. And I cite uh, data about this to give you one little bit of an example. In Germany, the Lutheran Church was so radically controlled for a time by the German princes that no Lutheran minister could marry without permission. And then his bride was picked for him. It was usually the leftover mistresses of the prince. Now that's how bad it became. It was very much like that in the Middle Ages, late Middle Ages. It became that again with the Enlightenment. And now we have an all-out effort to destroy the church.
and we had better recognize where the battle is. It is against statism, humanistic statism in our day. And it is a very, very serious matter. Now for a little more on the same subject. In this I am quoting a couple of sentences from the News and Views Digest for July 1983 put out by Ed Rowe of the Church League of America. And here it's from an article by D. James Kennedy of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I quote, In 1936, Adolf Hitler abolished all Christian schools in Germany. In 1938, Hitler required by law that every teacher in the public education system sever any relationship with any Christian or other religious organization. The total secularization of the state was followed by the total secularization of the educational system and led to the production of the atheistic humanist child who had no absolute values at all, unquote. Now, that's what Hitler's Germany was about. We are not told the truth about it because the historians and the liberals do not want us to know the truth about Hitler. Hitler was another humanistic statist. He was a new dealer in Germany, very much like Roosevelt and all his successors since then. What he was doing was to take away freedom and replace it with fascism, which is what Washington today is all about. Fascism is that form of socialism which maintains the outward forms of freedom, but by radical controls eliminates freedom and replaces it with the implicit ownership by the state under the nominal ownership by the people. That's what we have today. We don't have private ownership of property. We have property in the name of people, but radical controls on all properties by state and federal governments. Well, Hitler persecuted the churches. He confiscated monasteries. He sent Christians to his concentration camps, but we're not told that these days. We're just told about his anti-Semitism, which was very real, no doubt about it. We're also not told about the fact that he was enormously popular with the university professors. He was very popular with them because what he had in mind was a social order which would be dedicated to science, an educational system that would glorify science, which would eliminate Christianity and Judaism as unscientific and irrelevant to the modern age. Now, this is what Hitler was working to do. This is what Washington, D.C. is working to do, what the U.S. Supreme Court is all about. They try to exorcise Hitler from relevance to our time by presenting him as a figure that is like an incarnate devil so that we won't recognize his similarity to the men who rule Europe and America today. Now that's the plain, simple fact about Hitler. Well, I... Don't know what to get into now. There's a lot to talk about. Just briefly, let me refer you to the May 1983 Conservative Digest. Left-wing church group raids federal collection plate. Pro-Marxist National Council of Churches grabs your tax money. An article by Michelle Ann Rossi. It's an excellent article. It tells of all the funds in various forms that the National Council of Churches is getting. It's a very considerable amount. 
Now to something a little lighter. I enjoyed this cartoon in the June Farm Journal. Two farmers talking over a fence, and one of them says to the other, Last year I talked to myself a lot. This year I can't think of anything to say. <laughs> I have days like that now and then. And this, too, from the... Uh, a newsletter of the Highway Baptist Church in Spring Valley, California. The cartoon of the man sitting at his desk and pondering and saying, One day as I sat musing, sad and all alone, a voice came to me out of the gloom saying, Cheer up, things could be worse. So I cheered up, and sure enough, things got worse. <laughs> That's good. Of course, they haven't gotten worse for me, so I can laugh at that. I'm very happy with the way things have been going and delighted with a number of things that I'll discuss some other time. I read another book since I see we have a few minutes yet, and I'm hesitant about getting into this book. I've put off getting into it for several times because... Uh, I think it's so outstanding, but uh, I'll mention it now, and maybe I'll get back to it next time. You recall I dealt with uh, the great siege by Ernley Bradford of the Knights of Malta, and then I dealt with also the Battle of Lepanto, the great naval battle, and I read to you the book or the poem by G.K. Chesterton on Lepanto. Well, an excellent book by Jack Beeching has been published entitled The Galleys at Lepanto. So uh, it was published in 1982 by Scribner's Beeching, B as in boy, E-E-C-H-I-N-G, 1795. It is a delight, and uh, there are a couple of very bad errors early in the book. But apart from that, when he gets down to the Battle of Lepanto and the uh, problems with galleys and the victory, the implications of the victory, the book is a delight. So... Uh, you might want to buy it, or if you want to wait and hear me tell you about it next time, and then decide whether you want it or not, well and good. But I shall deal with it next time, and it is a joy uh, to read. I think that's it for this time. There's another book I want to deal with, which is also very important, on the secularization of the European mind in the 19th century by Owen Chadwick. Also an exceedingly important work. Quite a number of others that I just won't get started with now. Thank you. It's been good to have this time with you again. I, as usual, look forward to it and enjoy it immensely. And I'm glad that you do also. Thank you for your letters and comments. And until we... Come together again. God bless you and keep you.